Hello, Hive Nation. Welcome back to an intriguing episode of the Hive Nation podcast. Uh, today we have, uh, aside from uh, Greg and myself, of course, we have two new faces. Uh, Mr. Larry Cooper, who is uh, part of the Hive uh, as well. And we have Mr. Rod Collins today. Rod is a published author. He's got uh, two books that are currently out, one that is up for publishment as we speak. Uh, he's got another one in the hopper, and we gave him another uh, numerous ideas for many books after this um, That's uh, that he's going to put out, I'm sure. I'm very, very sure of that. Um, Rod also um, used to be the former chief operating executive of Blue Cross Blue Shield. And um, during his time with Blue Cross Blue Shield, he took that company to um, unprecedented um, sales and leadership. So um, that is uh, that's a big feather in Rod's cap as well. Um, so yeah, Mr. Collins, thank you and welcome to the Hive Nation podcast. Thank you. Pleased to be here. Um, I'm going to hand it off here to uh, Larry here now, and Larry, uh, off uh, off to you. Thank you, Jason. Uh, Rod, uh, I was just realizing the other day, it's actually been 10 years this month since we met for the first time in Boulder. Time flies when you're having fun. It, it is, yeah. So it is hard to believe, like it's been 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and you still look as young book. as ever. Pardon me? <laughs> you still look as young as ever. <laughs> I can't say the same. <laughs> uh, no, I think I have a lot less hair. <laughs> um you, uh, as Jason mentioned, you just sent your third book off to the publisher called Nobody is Smarter Than Everybody, or off to your agent, rather. And uh, it just so happens that we're releasing a, uh, a series of blog posts on hybrid work. Um, and I know you you touch on some of that in, in your articles and in your book. And so this is uh, really is a very opportune time for us to connect and have a conversation. So uh, like Jason, I really am uh, excited to have the conversation with you today. Uh, the first post we put out uh, explored the findings from Gallup and Steelcase surveys on advantages and disadvantages of hybrid. And interestingly, it was both employees and managers alike who, who said that the advantages far outweighed the disadvantages. Some people may have found that surprising. I, I don't, but some people I think might. Uh, in the second one, we looked at the do's and don'ts of hybrid and concluded that it's really a people first problem and not a technology first problem. And I think at the beginning of the pandemic, they, they approached it as a technology problem and they quickly realized that, you know, that really wasn't uh, what the issue was. In the last one, which we're actually going to release when uh, your podcast hits, is around some strategic considerations for organizations struggling with where to actually get started. So, uh, in that one, we draw on your recent Substack post on collective intelligence, uh, and which is front and center uh, in your new book in helping teams and organizations navigate complex and chaotic business challenges. So how we'd like to start is, is to ask you, could you share your thoughts with our listeners in the Hive Nation on how hybrid work changes expectations, but it also offers new challenges and also advantages in changing our approach to work and what you believe that means for the future of organizations, mm -hmm. their employees, and their customers. Well, the first thing I think that's evident is work's not going to be the same. 
And the immediate thing I think that a lot of executive leaders are seeing is the need to move to some form of hybrid work. Now that we're on the other side of COVID, and you know, obviously COVID drove the increase in hybrid work, uh, let's look at a couple of things that happened. Why did workers like it? It wasn't just because they stopped commuting, which is nice. You don't have to spend that time and you don't have to spend the cost of it. But I think the real reason people liked it is they had more autonomy. And I think this will be important for business leaders to keep in mind. The importance of autonomy to, to, uh, to workers. And it, I believe it's the key to, to uh, maintaining and keeping workers is the more autonomy you give them, the more likely they are to remain with you. The less you give them, the more likely they are to, to go away. I think too that um, from a management perspective, uh, it probably made the supervisory task easier um, because there was no expectation that supervisors have to be closely monitoring the work of people who are present with them. Um, and probably both those things led to more efficient work, uh, that people were actually getting more done in less time. And I would think a certain amount of administrative activities was probably diminished. So all of these things are good. Now, I do think, too, in terms of hybrid, it probably works best when you are working in the context of established processes, because everybody knows what they need to do. Um, and as long as we remain within the realm of established processes, um, then that's fine. I think there are dangers if you go to hybrid uh, and, and the danger could be hybrid is not necessarily the best structure for innovation. And this is important because we're not in a, in a, uh, a business era in which the past is a proxy for the future. That was the 20th century. In the 20th century, you could be a very successful executive if you were experienced about the past, because you could look backwards to go forwards, because change was incremental. Today, change can be exponential. And so it will be important if, if you are hybrid, and I'm not suggesting that companies not be hybrid, but if they are hybrid, they need to bring people physically together periodically several times a year. Uh, they probably need to bring in external facilitators so that they have maximum conversations. But there are two things that can get lost pretty quickly if all we do is work remotely is we lose a sense of personal history. And personal history is really important in terms of the relationships that work that uh, that businesses need uh, for work to deliver at an optimal level for customers. Um, and then uh, the second thing you need, and this is becoming more and more important in rapidly changing times, you need serendipity. Serendipity was not a need in the 20th century. And serendipity is the ability to connect unusual things. It was something, for example, that Apple was very good at and Steve Jobs was very cognizant of. I mean, he spent a lot of his time on designing the building in which people worked, why he wanted to maximize serendipity. And so if you go hybrid, you have to create, uh, uh, you have to create 
the opportunities in which people can have serendipitous encounters, which is why in that precious time, I suggest that it be facilitated so that you, because facilitators will be very good at optimizing the conversations. Serendipity is important because it helps to uncover two blind spots that are going to be troubling more and more business as this world that is characterized by accelerating change and increasingly complex and increasing complexity becomes more and more the norm. And the two blind spots are unconscious biases and unknown unknowns. As companies contemplate going hybrid, I would also suggest to them that they consider morphing their management model, moving away from centralized top-down hierarchies and moving towards more self-managed peer-to-peer networks. And so they may wanna be thinking about as people are working remotely to organize them more in cross-functional teams than in functional silos to the extent that they can. And the reason for this is, if you are a strict command and control structure, and if you continue to remain so in the hybrid situation, then you are going to give a select few people the ability to make the decisions in the company. You're also going to give them the authority to uh, uh, have command and control authority over their people, which means the fundamental uh, uh, experience of power is coercive power. Because uh, what command and control power is, I have the ability to tell you to do something you may not want to do. And if you don't do it, you may lose your job. Now, the problem with that is, if an elite few are making the decisions, if the world is changing very fast and they have unconscious biases, then you are going to amplify those biases. The other problem is uncovering unknown unknowns. And what these are, the things that you don't know that you don't know that could come back and haunt you. So for example, let me give an example of a company that failed at both of these and failed miserably. And a view of the reports this morning that we're receiving about Netflix, um, uh, this poor decision really, really, well, it was the death knell of the company. Uh, Blockbuster used to be the largest uh, uh, video vendor in the United States. And one day, two people walked into the CEO's office and suggested that they sell their company to him for $50 million, and they would set up a streaming service. They call it blockbuster.com. And in, four, in a 45-minute meeting, he more or less laughed at them, said, you know, uh, uh, this is a crazy idea, said the internet will never have any impact on our industry. There's your unconscious bias. And he was absolutely convinced, we just need to continue this business model that we have. We are the king of video. Why would we do anything else? And what he was unable to uncover is the unknown unknowns, what he didn't know that he didn't know about the changes that would happen. The two people who met with them that day were the co-founders of Netflix. On that day, Blockbuster was worth $6 billion. Uh, today, it is worth $300 billion. That one person having the authority to make that decision cost the business the opportunity to grow 50-fold if Blockbuster had been more organized as a network. If no single person had the authority to make that type of decision, there were surely people in Blockbuster who knew streaming was the future and, and could have uh, put the senior leadership in touch with unknown unknowns because somebody in your company does know the unknown unknowns. 
And this is why collective intelligence is so important because networks do not leverage the individual intelligence of an elite few. They leverage the collective intelligence of the many. So let me just sum this up. Coming back to the hybrid situation, if you organize in cross-functional teams, you increase the opportunity for serendipity because people with different perspectives are working together, focus on a particular customer. And that allows the free flow of information and that's where innovative ideas will come and help you stay ahead of the market. It will also help you to challenge your existing views on the market. And that is a way in which you can discover unknown unknowns. And so if you're organizing cross-functional teams, you can stay hybrid. If you bring people together for, uh, for two or three days in some hotel room somewhere, but physically together, then uh, whatever that costs you in terms of investment, I think it is likely to pay itself back many times over. That is very, very interesting. I have I have a quick follow-up with that a, a wee little bit. You mentioned peer-to-peer -peer networks having the ability to, you know, manage that or, or uh, you know, mm -hmm. be part of that type of management system. Do you have a setup for peer-to-peer -peer networks that have like a, a hierarchy within a peer-to-peer -peer network as well? Or is it otherwise you you know it would kind of just kind of be willy-nilly all over the place is what i'm getting at that's a great question all right let's start with with uh the typical hierarchy in every hierarchy there's there's an informal network it's self-organized and it is composed of people who have extreme political savvy they know how to break the rules and get away with it for the benefit of the company and i suggest that many companies would be in trouble if they didn't have this clandestine, self-organized, informal network who know how to break rules, that's probably what's sustaining them. And it just shows that network really is a better structure than hierarchy. If everybody in a company is doing exactly what they're told and nothing more, the company will fail. Mm -hmm. Now, let's look at networks. In every network, are there hierarchies? Yes, there are. But they are not a priori. They're not, and, and they're not permanent. And so what happens is you wind up, instead of having a designated leader who's responsible for all decisions for everything, you wind up having teams of leaders in which everyone is expected to be a leader at the appropriate time where their strength is going to contribute. And so what happens is you want the decision-making to happen at a team level. Now, to give our audience a sense of this, I want to give a very practical example where this transformation was made from command and control hierarchy to, to a peer-to-peer -peer network that is literally saving the lives of thousands of people. And it is the airline industry. Have you ever wondered why in North America, we don't have plane crashes anymore? We used to, in the 1970s, 1980s, we probably averaged between our two countries, probably three to four air crashes per year. If you were a traveling employee, you got on a plane and you were aware, I don't want to be on one of the three or four that happened this year. We don't have them anymore. Why? It isn't just better machines. We do have better machines, but it's not the primary reason. The primary reason is in 1981, after three uh, crashes that were due to pilot error that was directly attributed to the command and control management system in the cockpit, where the captain made all the decisions and he could shut off and not listen to his crew. As the NTSB investigators were looking at the tapes afterwards, they realized all the information they needed for a safe landing was in the cockpit. 
but the management system did not allow it to come forward because the crew members who knew that information couldn't challenge the captain for fear of insubordination, for fear of their jobs. And so all of the airline pilots, it began with United Airlines, went through videotape simulated training and were taught in a crisis, you ought to become a team. The captain is not a dictator. The captain is a facilitator, a cultivator. And you ought to quickly bring together all of your strengths so you can manage the whole situation. And that's what happens today. And they have been doing this now for almost four decades. And it is proof positive, the fact that we just have few crashes and we don't have people dying in these crashes anymore. The peer-to-peer -peer network model is superior to the top-down hierarchy because in a crisis, in a cockpit, you don't want any unconscious biases and you don't want any blind spots. You don't want any unknown unknowns. And by combining information among, even if it's a, just a crew of two or a crew of three, just combining the information can quickly uh, help the team to make a better decision. And that's one of the things that uh, this system was actually invented in NASA and the, F and the NTSB suggested to the airlines in the early 80s that they should pick this up. Uh, and so there you have four decades of experience of how this is a superior model. That is very, very cool. That's, that's something Jason and I talk about quite a lot, Rod, is the corporate culture behind any team, whether it's in the office and everybody's in that building together or on the hybrid side of things. And when we talk about that corporate culture on a hybrid model, how do you suggest implementing that top-down structure where, yes, there's going to be managers and you know CEOs of companies, but how do you encourage that peer networking within a structure like that? That's a good question. The managers need to take advantage of the support that they have uh, for the people working for them. So the captain is still the captain in the cockpit, just not a dictator. And so what managers should do, and, and, and I, this, this taps into my own personal history, is, is give up control. It's an illusion. No single person can control everything. If you, what you don't want is it's personal control is not what you're going for. You're going for business control. You want the business to be under control. And businesses being under control means they can adapt to changing, changing circumstances as fast as they are happening. And no single person can process the rate of change as it's happening today in real time. Mm -hmm. You could do it in the 20th century, can't do it today. So leaders cannot exist without teams and share the leadership, right? And a lot of times, if you remain in a hierarchical structure, the staff won't mind you making the decision as long as you're making decisions that make sense. And if you do that, you're going to increase the engagement of people. And so even in a situation where you're going to have an ultimate single leader, if you're continually getting impact, in, input, if you are inviting diversity of opinion and you are allowing dissent, that is extremely important because every innovative idea is some form of dissent from the way we do things now. And if you have to manage for change, you have to manage dissent and allow for it. Um, and uh, I think that's what what uh, what leaders can do and allow people to have input into decisions, regardless of whether they're made by the team, 
which I think is, is you know, as happens in the cockpits today, or if the decision is still made by the manager. The critical thing is having that interaction so that serendipity can happen. What is the most valuable tool available as a resource today to use as a hybrid model um, work platform? I think an excellent example was the Ford Motor Company under Alan Mulally. They remained, um, they remained a hierarchy. Uh, uh, they didn't change their organization chart. And why did Ford turn around under him? Uh, it's because he turned the senior leadership team into a highly effective uh, team that made decisions together. And, and so if we have senior executives uh, listening to this, I would urge them to adapt a practice that Malali used and, uh, and it's one I personally used when I was the chief executive of the Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP program in the United States. And to give our listeners a sense, that was a $19 billion business, which was an alliance of 39 separate companies. So it was a rather complex business arrangement. Um, what Malali did is once a week, he got the whole senior leadership team together. And there were no excuses. Nobody could say, well, I have to be in Italy because of this problem here. No, no. The most important meeting you need to be at is the meeting of your senior leader peers because he understood they needed to spend quality time together. And he got them, rather than hiding difficulties because they would appear to be weak leaders, he got them to bring them forward because smart leaders get their problems out there on the table. And then he he established a discipline where the different members would combine their strengths to solve the problems. And so failure, failure was not bringing in something that isn't on target. Failure was being quiet when something's on target. And so, you know, he literally changed that business, turned it around. Now, there are other leaders who have done this type of thing. Almost every instance where a leader has gone in and use what I would call network dynamics rather than a hierarchical dynamics to, to manage the company. They have extraordinary success. And when that leader leaves, there is a strong tendency for the hierarchy like antibodies to take back over again. And so Malali's successor did not last long. He was handed a good system. Um, and so leaders should resist the urge, I must put my personal stamp on this to appear to be successful. No, no. Success is something that happens in the marketplace. And you, what you want to do is have the best organization that delivers results in the marketplace. The truly, truly strong leader understands that it's not about me. It's about them. It's about the customer. And you understand too, if you want shareholder profits, don't focus on them because you can't influence them in a direct way. They're an indirect measure. The direct measure is customer satisfaction, customer value. Purpose of a business is not to create shareholder wealth. It's to create customer value. Mm -hmm. And I believe shareholder wealth is incredibly important, but it is the reward you get for delivering customer value. If you keep your eye on customer value, you're going to adapt to change because customers are more in touch with how things are changing oftentimes than corporations. And they also may be key inputs for serendipity for you. 
If you're focused on shareholder wealth, you're looking over the next 90 days financial statements and you are stuck in the status quo. And you may have nice financials today, but where will your financials be a year or two from now? If you don't have the ability to adapt to change and your pathway for that is keep focus on customer value. Management's not about what happens in the four walls of an organization, or it's not even about what happens when you're in a hybrid structure. What matters is how are you delivering value to, to customers and how are you learning so you stay ahead of others at delivering that value. In that same breath with the with the customer service type of uh, of um, concentration, uh, is there what, what's your opinion on on a four day work week that would compare to you know how you how you achieve customer service or how you roll out customer service? I think whether it's four or five, or some people like six days, it's it's not that it's not the amount of time you put in. Okay. It's really about the value you deliver. And I've always been more interested in, in working smart than working harder. Mm -hmm. So if it takes five days to do the job, have it five days. If it's four days, four days. If um, Another thing about self-managed teams is if you go towards that, they'll figure out the time it takes. And if they're delivering high value and can do it on three or four days, that's, don't get in the way of that. Um, yeah, the, the idea of focusing on time really goes back to the assembly line of the early 20th century. Uh, we're paying for value, not for time. You know, another issue of autonomy is I think, and I think one of the reason people like uh, working remotely is they are in charge of their time. Yeah. And, and I think there are some studies out there showing that when people work remotely, they actually spend more time at work than they did when they were in the office for several reasons. Number one, they save an hour or two a day because they don't yeah. have to commute, okay? They can work in blocks of time, okay, that, that achieves work-life balance. But not only that, they can get into their work rhythms. So if they work for a couple of hours and then they peter out, and maybe they, they do something around the household, now they come back in two more hours. Those four hours together interrupted by that time are probably more productive than four hours straight. Morning people can work in the mornings. Evening people can work in the evenings. I mean, I'm a morning person. I am no good after five, six o'clock. I mean, the brain is operating at 50% at best. Yeah. But in the morning, I'm operating at 200%. Yeah. I have a brother who, you know, 10 o'clock comes once a day and it's dark. So, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, uh, you know, because different people have, yeah. you know, have different. Yeah. And so this allows people to uh, and, and this sense of autonomy is very, very meaningful. That is awesome. I, I really like that. Yeah, that's, that's very, very awesome. Um, Larry, have you got something else? Uh, yeah, I was I was uh, kind of going to come back around to the to the hybrid context mm -hmm. and get your thoughts on because like you've, you've talked a lot about uh, the things that they they need to consider in terms of you know when it's in play but in terms of the setup and helping them actually figure out you know what's going to work for them in the context of hybrid and sort of the way i've been kind of thinking about it and, and positioning it is if they figure out how to do this the way you're describing that this actually will enable them to then start thinking about 
you know, that this actually works in almost every other aspect of their business and, and kind of how they work, right? That mm -hmm. they can learn how to do these things by taking the time to apply it, figuring out how hybrid work is going to work for them. Yeah. And, and, and I think I would urge our listeners, hybrid's a reality and you're adapting to it. But don't lose sight of the fact that we are probably undergoing the most significant change in the history of human civilization right now as this technology revolution just moves on. And the only way I believe companies are going to succeed is if they move down the pathway to more network structures. And specifically, however you set up your teams of hybrid workers, okay, uh, set up, give them the maximum decision-making authority that you can. Uh, some decisions, uh, Amazon's got a great phrase for this. They have type one and type two decisions. Type one decisions are decisions that could sink the company. So those are to be made by the senior level. And everybody at Amazon knows what those are. Type two decisions are the decisions of the normal day-to-day -day operations that aren't going to sink the company. No one decision will do that. If you can get comfortable letting people make as many of their own type two decisions as they are, I think you will be surprised. And, and over time, you'll see they're making better decisions than when you were running things up and down a chain of command. They're making smarter decisions and they're making faster decisions. And, and, and you do have to school them on where the boundaries are. Uh, Gore has a phrase for this. They're a, they're a company that, now, they're a very interesting company. They're an 11,000-person company in 30 countries around the world, multi-billion dollar enterprise, made a profit in every year of, of its 60-plus years of existence. And in this 11,000-person company, there are no bosses. All work is self-organized. And so they have taken this and become a market leader using this model. Now, I'm, I'm sure that most people on the call cannot move to that because Gore was born this way. Mm -hmm. um, but to the extent that you can organize in cross-functional teams, uh, give them the ability to make decisions themselves. What you don't want to do is have a single leader who can make the, the uh, who can veto the rest of the group and make unilateral decisions. I think one of the most dangerous dynamics you can put in play in a company today, whether you're hybrid or not, there's too many people who can make unilateral decisions because that means you have legions of people who can kill good ideas and keep bad ideas alive. Dangerous in a rapidly changing world. You can get these blind spots we talked about corrected with team decision-making. And although it may seem counterintuitive, it will be faster. I, I don't see any speed involved in running up something down five layers in an organization where each layer could take a week or two weeks. So there's no time advantage in, in organizations today because it takes months many times to get a decision. If you let the teams do it, they'll go back and forth for a messy couple of hours, but they'll be able to make that decision in that amount of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah it's inter that's interesting. In the government, we used to have this saying that when the teams worked on it, it was in fine print. By the time it made it to the executives, it was in 24-point bold on a slide. <laughs> Can you imagine what detail might have been missing? <laughs>
And so, uh, you know, and all of this reinforces what is it that people love about it's the autonomy. And and another thing about networks compared to hierarchies is the way power works. In a hierarchy, power is a function of force. It's coercive power that some have and others and most don't, which means in a hierarchy, there are the powerful and the powerless. You want to know why 70% of people are disengaged at work? Because they're powerless. That's why. Now, in a network, there are no powerless people. Everybody experiences power. Does that mean anybody can do anything they want? No. It means their voices matter and they have to participate with others and their checks on each other to make the best de de decision. The, the dynamic that drives power in networks is not force, it's energy. And the energy is not a priori, it's something that emerges from the interaction of the people. Because if they got to combine their intelligence, if they're responsible for making smart decisions, they are learning as they're working. And since their fingerprints are over it, they're contributors. They're not order takers. And contributors feel that sense of autonomy. And everyone in your organization is powerful. Yeah, yeah interesting uh, on that point, Doug Kirkpatrick says that empowerment is lending power which means yeah. the loan can be recalled. And right. and in, there is no empowerment in networks. Right. Because you the only way you have empowerment is somebody who has power has to delegate it to someone who doesn't. Right. And in networks, everyone shares in power, but it's power is energy. I mean, coercion invites resistance, okay? Energy invites participation. If you want everybody involved, they need to participate mm -hmm. and you, they need to be involved in decisions, not as unilateral decision makers. Okay. But as contributing decision makers, mm -hmm. this is really important. Companies yeah. hire smart people. Why not use all their intelligence? Exactly. Do you have any examples before we go? Do you have any examples of uh, organizations that have been able to make the transition from hierarchies to, to more of a network model? I think there are lots of examples of leaders who have done it, okay? I gave the example of Alan Mulally and what he right. did there. It certainly was done at NUMI, um, which was shut down. It was done uh, earlier in a uh, the Saturn division of Ford. Um, but as I mentioned before, if you do not change the fundamental structure, right. then uh, if if you don't kill the hierarchy, then the next person in the role says that was yesterday. This is today, and one of the things I, one of the points I make in the, in the uh, uh, the book I've just the manuscript I've just completed is this can be either a management style or a management system. Um, and so, if if any manager can make this their manager style if they so choose it, and 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 the more the more span of authority they have, then the more they have the ability to give up that authority and to set this type of structure. And that certainly is what Alan Mulally did inside Ford. Um, but in every instance that I know of, uh, it, it reverts back. The companies who have succeeded at this up to this point have been born this way. Now, I think what we're likely to see happen is that companies that that will succeed in the future will be ones born this way. And I think, uh, and, and I'm, I'm, I, I fear this is likely to happen. We're not going to see an evolution of existing co companies. 
we're going to see a displacement of existing companies and nobody's going to know it, notice it. Because you're not, you're not pining away for Blockbuster now that you've got Netflix. Nobody misses the Encyclopedia Britannica anymore, all right? <laughs> you know, Toys R Us is gone, okay? Borders, you know? So this is what happens. We don't even realize that these large companies that once were market leaders disappear and nobody notices, okay? And so if you don't want to be, if you don't want to fade away with nobody noticing it, then you need to become a more intelligent organization. Mm -hmm. And so you need to find ways to leverage the collective intelligence of teams to the extent that you can to make smarter decisions, to not be captured by the blind spots of either unconscious biases or you become victim of unknown unknowns. Yeah. That's extraordinary. That That's an extraordinary conversation right there. I That was... Very, very powerful. I love it. Yeah. Now, can companies make the transition? Yes, but they have to change the fundamental orientation of an organization. Organizations are oriented towards control. And most business leaders are focused on expanding my control. That's an inward focus. And a lot of times that control is really about inside the organization. A lot of times more than outside, all right? The purpose of an organization, especially in a rapidly changing, more complex world, is not to expand control, it's to expand consciousness. And I don't mean it in a new age spiritual sense. I mean it in the sense of you need to be aware of what you don't know you know. You have data and systems that you haven't put together that is knowledge. You have people distributed in different parts and because their voices don't matter, they never come together and serendipity is what allows that to become knowledge that now you become aware of. And you certainly need to be conscious of what you don't know you don't know. And so if you are able to tap into these two spaces of what you currently don't know, then you are expanding the intelligence of your organization and you can make smarter decisions. That is where the power from an organization comes from. That's why power is about energy because the experience of discovering something, oh my goodness, I didn't know we knew that. Or the experience of discovering, wow, uh, we didn't know we needed to do that. Let, let me give you a practical example. I was brought in, I do collective intelligence workshops as a way for a company to experience what it's like to work as a network for a day or two. And I was brought into a project. It was going to be a customer-facing application. On, so it was very high touch on a website. They are in 90 days of the conversion and it is off the rails. And so I'm brought in on an emergency basis. We get 40 or 50 people in the room because that's what we needed to get the collective intelligence. And I always remember this, this one guy comes in and I can tell he doesn't want to be here. He's under stress. Last thing I need to do in the middle of this thing is an all day meeting and his body language is shouting, all right? And through the day, periodically I notice him and by the end of the day, we had identified four key things they needed to do. And I could feel a sense in the room, we're going to get this thing back on the rails. And when I closed the session, I said, does anybody have any comments? And this person who had been shouting body language raises his hand. And I'm thinking, well, I wonder what he's going to say. And so he stands up and he says, you know, I didn't want to be in this meeting today. He said, I, I thought this would be a total waste of time. 
But he said, this is the best meeting I've ever been to. And then he pointed to one of the four flip charts that had one of the four items that they identified. And he said, that item right there is not only an important item, it's the most important item we have to do. And none of us knew about it before we walked in the room this morning. They had uncovered an unknown unknown that was the, the secret to unlocking what they needed to do for a, an effective conversion. And that conversion was effective uh, some 85 days later. Wow. Wow. That's what we created with the circumstances in which serendipity could happen. And that's how we're able to identify that. Wow. Right. Awesome. So when, when is your new book uh, bound to hit the hit the street? Well, as soon as we find a publisher. <laughs> <laughs> so, now, my agent is shopping it around, but I expect that okay. it'll, it'll happen sometime this year. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that sounds like it might be a good time to have you back and, and, uh, talk about your new book and and have some more chats about some more interesting topics. I would welcome that opportunity. I was just going to say the same thing, Larry, great mind, something, something. <laughs> so nobody's so, smarter than everybody, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. A little serendipity happened. Yes. Uh, so uh, where can, where can our listeners find you? I have a website. It's Rod Collins. That's Rod with a D. Uh, rodcollins.net and uh, uh, there they'll have access to to my books uh, to my blogs I have a substack column and uh, uh, they'll also can find connections to I do keynote speaking on this as well so right so uh, we were hoping for for the podcast drop that uh, we'd be able to have you on the hive as well sure be able to find you on the hive as well that'd be fine just let me know what's involved yeah. Excellent. Excellent. You bet. Yeah. You bet. We will. Well, Rod, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for uh, that great insight. That was uh, very powerful. When this drops, um, I am positive that you are going to be heard from somebody within the hive uh, as well. It's uh, That was very, very well. Uh, I, I really enjoyed that. Thank you very much. A lot of people are going to learn a lot of great lessons here. Oh, it's nice to be with Jason and Greg. Good to see you. Larry, good to see you again. I, I look forward thank you very to much. our next time as well, Rod. Thank you very much. I look forward to it. Thank you. Hi, Nation. Thank you so much.